Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. All crazy martinis for conservatives today, Jim, and it's kind of appropriate since, as some folks on Twitter know, I had a little bit of a crazy morning dealing with our dedicated servants working for the government at the Department of Motor Vehicles this morning. First of all, welcome back to you. Um, uh, the Idea Summit, I take it, went well. Um, are you fresh out of ideas or full of ideas now? Uh, my ideas are spent, Greg. <laughs> I I used up – no, it was a really good time. Put up links to it in the jolt. Uh, it was broadcast on C-SPAN. Got to moderate uh, what a lot of people said was the uh, highlight of a two excellent days, and it's not just me bragging. Uh, Rich Lowry and Jonah Goldberg, they didn't quite go out at hammer and tongs, but it was two bright, really well-informed, really thoughtful guys going at it with no, very little held back over the issue of nationalism. Uh, great fireworks, great, but you know, uh, for everybody who thinks, oh, conservatives all get along, and it was all everybody marching in lockstep. No, 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 no. That was. Uh, and, you know, it's great to see. And it was not, you know, these are two guys who like each other a great deal, worked together for a long time. Uh, no animosity, just, you know, very impassioned and, and you know, argument, counter-argument, debate the way it should be. Um, but I just said you had a rough morning, Greg. And I, well, every time I, when I first start seeing your tweets about this, I was hoping it was building up to a great April Fool's Day joke. <laughs> oh, only, only if it, that were possible. No, we uh, ended up uh, getting a new vehicle because the old one died. Uh, so that was a whole process that could take up an entire podcast with uh, a lot of uh, interesting thoughts about car salesmen. But we decided to sell the the old one, but didn't trade it in. So I'm taking in the tags. And in Virginia, uh, if it's long enough before your next renewal of the old registration, you can actually get a refund. So I was going there to get All money, right. not give money. Uh, and it was uh, pretty sparsely attended. So I'm thinking, oh, well, this in and out, no big deal. They got nine windows here. At least they say so on the screen. There's eight that are visible. And then it just says window nine over on the wall and you can't see another window. So I guess it's in a parallel universe. And I'll give everybody one guess which window I got called to. Uh, so I did not end the up in a triangle of windows. I did not end up in the uh, what is it? The in between there with uh, Stranger Things yes. uh, did not end up there. Uh, by the time I got up there, it was a very quick transaction. Uh, the lady was very nice. It was a very simple thing. It was over in a couple of minutes. But uh, watching all these people uh, go ahead of me, and most of them, as far as I could tell, were there to just renew their driver's licenses, which also should be a very simple, quick process. But it's interesting, once you go into the DMV, it's like everything starts going in slow motion, but you're not. Uh, as I tweeted out, it's like uh, how Michael Jordan described the game once he became an elite player and everything just slows down and he could take advantage of things. And I said, it's just like that, except I can't dunk on anybody in this situation. And so my favorite part, Jim, is these people go up there for their several minute driver's license reauthorization. And then when the transaction's over, these people behind the counter just act like they have uh, gone through intense physical labor and so they have to go take a lap around the place to just recover from having typed a few things on the computer and so uh then they come back and they they call up the next person and so what should have taken a few minutes uh took quite a bit longer than that uh i have to say the the, the young lady that i dealt with uh, was very quick very professional and once i finally got up there i was out the door but uh you don't want people in in that type of mentality running your health care your uh your va or anything like that 
You know, Greg, people are going to listen to this and think, uh, oh, they must be touting some sort of new sponsor called, you know, at home DMV or something like that. <laughs> well, that would have been a good, would have made a good April Fool's Day joke. I also noticed, Greg, that uh, it's like you've developed the world's most useless superpower. <laughs> you move super fast, but only at the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> Um, nobody ever tries to rob. You know, I should realize, wait, they, theoretically, they handle money, but nobody ever has ever, no one has ever tried to rob a Department of Motor Vehicles, have they? No, but they did have a security agent, and I felt sorry for that guy. That's got to be the most tedious job on the planet. But uh, he was there, he was armed, uh, and uh, everybody behaved themselves, probably because most of them were asleep. I was going to say, could you imagine, you know, this is a stick up. Give me all the money behind the glass. One second, sir. <laughs> I need authorization for my manager before I withdraw that money for you. <laughs> That's why they don't do it. They'd never be able to get away. Yeah. Uh, table Cops table. are waiting outside. Come on, man. I've been waiting outside here for 20 minutes since we first got the call. Uh, but let's go to our all-crazy martinis now, Jim, and it's... It's not like you and I have been pointing out the fact that Joe Biden's a little bit handsy with the ladies on dozens of occasions over the past few years. One of our favorite pictures is with the uh, the biker in the, the restaurant, wherever that was, and the male bikers look at Joe Biden while he's got this uh, lady on his lap. There's the, uh, the Senate swearing in pictures from when he was vice president. There's the picture of him with the lady at the Christmas party. Uh, there's the one with Ash Carter's wife, although she now says that there, that's being badly misconstrued what was actually happening there. But now Joe Biden is actually being accused of inappropriate activity. Uh, not so much sexual harassment, but just being inappropriate by Lucy Flores, who is a Democratic lieutenant governor candidate in Nevada. She went on State of the Union with Jake Tapper and had this to say about why she came forward. I would say politics was definitely the impetus. The reason why we're having these conversations about Vice President Joe Biden is because he's considering running for president. And frankly, the reason why I felt so compelled to finally say something was because over the years, as this behavior was documented, as it was frankly dismissed by the media and not taken seriously, that conversation was not coming up in the discussions about whether or not he would, uh, co- in, a, in a complete analysis of his, of his history, of his record, of, as we go through the vetting process for all of these candidates, that important aspect was being left out. And not surprisingly, Jim, Democrats pouncing. Here's Elizabeth Warren. I read the the uh, op-ed last night, I believe, Lucy Flores. And Joe Biden needs to give an answer. Should he not run as a result? That's for Joe Biden to decide. And Bernie Sanders? I have no reason not to believe Lucy. And, and I think what this speaks to is the need to fundamentally change the culture of this country and to create environments where women uh, feel comfortable and feel safe. And that's something we have got to do. Amy Klobuchar also saying she has no reason not to believe Lucy Flores. So, uh, Jim, the allegation is this happened in public. Uh, She was getting ready to introduce him. He was uh, standing behind her and uh, kissed the back of her head. And given all the pictures we've seen of Joe Biden doing similar things, uh, I don't think anybody's going to dispute that this incident happened. The question is, uh, Democrats have uh, seen these pictures for years and never said a word. So why is it happening now? Yeah, I was going to say, I went back and forth on this, Greg. I originally said, ah, here we go. Flores was a Bernie Sanders supporter the last cycle. Sanders is in it this year. Apparently, she also attended a, a Beto O'Rourke event. 
Um, this apparently occurred in 2014. And you could say, well, wait a second. You know, if, you know, if this was such a serious issue, why didn't you come forward? Why didn't you say so at the time? What, you know, uh, in her account, she doesn't describe any, you know, Mr. Vice President, please stop touching me like that, uh, which I, she would have been, you know, and every, had every right to have said. Nothing in 2015, nothing 2016, nothing 2017, nothing 2018. Here it is. You know, we're now in spring of 2019. She comes forward in this essay and says, hey, you know, we need to have a conversation about Joe Biden doing this. And at first I was like, ah, here we go. It's, it's a, you know, it's a hit on Biden. But then you read through her essay and she makes a lot of the points that you and I and lots of other conservatives have been making for a lot of years, Greg, which was that, you know, this is, again, this is not the first time we've all seen the cases in which Joe Biden, when he's in the presence of a young woman, just touches her in ways that seem a little too friendly, a little too intimate, a little too, um, just just a little too much to, that are not normal ways you would interact with someone who is a stranger, hands on shoulders, rubbing, nose next to the ear, kind of snuggling. What are, you, what are you doing, Mr. Vice President? We know you've cultivated this wacky, lovable uncle uh, uh, image for a lot of years, but stop touching her. Stop it. Stop, just, just, just back, you know. But uh, for eight, you know, for, throughout eight years of him being vice president, Every time one of these things would happen, generally it would be conservative press who would notice and say, <clears throat> why is the vice president, why does his hand around her waist and inching up towards, you know, uh, upper cleavage land and, and things like that? And it would all, oh, you crazy prudish conservatives. Ah, good heavens. You know, that's just Joe being Joe. Well, now it turns out apparently this was bothering some of the women. Um, it's worth quoting, noting, by the way, that Ash Carter's wife has her own uh, post up on Medium today. This is probably the most famous one. It's uh, Biden's got his hands on her shoulders. He's behind her. It looks like he's kind of either whispering into her ear and or maybe nibbling on her earlobe. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's not doing that. But And her whole thing is that this is one frame of a video. If you watch the whole video, it doesn't look quite so bad. She was not offended. She did not feel like this was, this was him being reassuring on a big day for her. Look, some of these women who've had these kind of interactions with Joe Biden have no problem with it. They perceive it as him just being friendly in his golden retriever on steroids style <laughs> of just being very touchy. Um, I, I, but I, her observation that this was not treated as a big deal by the media. Now, I, I you and I, or at least I would put forth here, there's a very simple rule at work here. It's not if you're a Democrat, you get a pass. That, that's, a, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. What it is is, if you are important to the Democrat, to either the Democratic agenda or the progressive agenda, then you're protected. If you're expendable and if you can be replaced with another Democrat fairly easily, i.e. Al Franken, uh, Elliot Spitzer, even Anthony Weiner. I mean, the Republicans won his House seat for like two months or something like that. You know, very quickly, it's a heavily Democratic district that replaced him with another Democrat. In that case, the consequences are fine. If Joe Biden had had to address this issue during his vice presidency, that would have been a major embarrassment to the Obama presidency. And so I think there was kind of this collective attitude of everybody kind of either averting their eyes, uh, not paying attention to it, laughing it off, kind of saying, ah, you know, this, this happens all the time. Oh, come on, you know, lighten up, uh, all that kind of stuff. And the things that would never be granted to a Republican figure who is touching people in that way. You see it in the way Ted Kennedy has been reevaluated after he passed away. You see it in the way Bill Clinton has been reevaluated in, in his actions of 1998 to today. Um, once you're no longer needed by the Democratic Party, then you're in trouble. But until then, you could be as protected as, I don't know, the uh, lieutenant governor of Virginia, maybe. Or, 
That's that's called foreshadowing one of our other martinis today, Greg. Yes, absolutely. And just uh, to put, I guess, more of a bad rather than crazy spin on this, uh, Caleb Howe uh, tweeting out this excerpt from Mediaite quoting Lucy Flores. I don't know if this is from one of her interviews or from her essay, but she says, quote, we're often pressured to keep our mouth shut about anything, she said. We are expected to, quote, unquote, keep our dirty laundry to ourselves, and it's always in service to the party. She said that because Democrats have options, she doesn't feel pressured to stay quiet and just take one for the team the way in which we're always asked to do, unquote. Yeah, there are a lot of ways you could take that statement, but it certainly suggests that this is not the first time something like this has either happened to her or people she knows, other young women in the Democratic Party. Um, so it'll be fair, kind of fair to ask, just how often does this happen? And just who is asking who to, quote unquote, take one for the team and stay quiet about it and things like that? Um, you know, the, the other thing, I've been thinking about this a bunch, Greg. So you know that old saying, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac? Sure. I believe it was the infamous uh, rugged, manly stud known as uh, Henry Kissinger who, yes, uh, yes. who famously said that. Um, it, do you ever notice that you never hear that quote coming from someone who is not powerful? Right. Right. It's always the powerful guy saying power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Well, do you ever think maybe this is just the way powerful people perceive themselves? <laughs> right. This idea that if you happen to be vice president of the United States or, or, or president in the case of Bill Clinton or a CEO or, or studio head, or if you're in some sort of powerful position, you're a powerful man, you just perceive other women as throwing themselves at you. If you just, you, you, you kind of, well, yes, I may look like an obese toad in the case of Harvey Weinstein or something like that, but you know, because of my power, women are attracted to me. So maybe they are, but maybe in many cases they aren't. What it is is because of your power they might be a little less a little more reticent to object when you put your hand around or, or do something like that so again the other you know, what is the lesson of this first of all greg i don't know about you you ever have like oh you see somebody you haven't seen them in a while maybe it's a work associate maybe it's a friendship maybe it's in that kind of blurry area you go in for the hug and all of a sudden you realize oh we're going to do the kissing on the cheeks thing oh okay oh uh, yeah mwah, mwah, that kind of you know there's a reason, you know, people are asking, you know, keep, keep your eyes open to how the person's reacting, right? <laughs> um, if you're vice president of the United States or if you're anybody, you really is, unless you, if you don't know someone, there's probably not a good reason to come up behind them, rub their shoulders, put your nose deep into their hair, inhale deeply, according to this Flores <laughs> account, and kiss them on the, on the top of the head. Um, Greg, at Radio America, is there a lot of kissing on the top of the head as a standard Monday morning? Hey, how was your weekend type no, reading? No, most definitely not. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I've been in Washington for more than two decades now. I'm still not comfortable with that whole thing. There's not a lot of kiss-kiss going on in northern Michigan. And so that's still how I'm uh, – where my mindset is on that. So a nice it's handshake. Like all of a sudden we became French overnight. <laughs> Just, you know. A firm handshake, even a, even a, even a quick hug is fine, but uh, that's a little a little much. Uh, I'm also having a hard time imagining uh, Henry Kissinger uh, hitting on anyone uh, with that. Uh, you know, Mr. President, the power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. I really liked your. Uh, who were you impersonating last week? It was like really good. That was Ted Koppel, I believe. Koppel, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> two figures I really don't want to think of in a romantic context. <laughs> On to the bad martini. Oh, no, it's the second crazy martini. What am I talking about? CNN. <laughs> How 
House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler will authorize a subpoena this week to obtain the full unredacted report from Special Counsel Robert Mueller teeing up a showdown between congressional Democrats and the Trump administration over the nearly 400-page report. Nadler said Monday that he had scheduled a markup on Wednesday to authorize a subpoena for the Mueller report, as well as the special counsel's underlying evidence. The markup would give the New York Democrat the green light to subpoena the report, though Nadler has not said whether he would do so before Attorney General William Barr releases a redacted version publicly, which he is expected to do later this month. The committee will also vote to authorize subpoenas for five former White House staffers, Don McGahn, former White House counsel, Steve Bannon, Hope Hicks, Reince Priebus, and Ann Donaldson, whom Nadler says may have received documents from the White House relevant to the special counsel's probe. So, Jim, we're on April 1st. It's April Fool's Day, but these stories are real today, sadly. And so we're going to get a report from a bar here in less than two weeks. And apparently we can't wait for that. And I'm guessing if he really, really wanted to see the redacted information, uh, they could probably do so in closed session, although members of Congress are notorious for leaking that stuff. So uh, is this just a major grandstanding operation or is Nadler actually getting at something here? No, this is a, a this is a championship grandstanding operation. Um, <laughs> Nadler has an op ed in The New York Times today. And this is you know, what makes his uh, his statement championship grandstanding is in the entire op-ed, he never even mentions why Barr is uh, uh, still holding on to the report, still reviewing it, and what he's redacting, which seems like kind of an important aspect of this debate here, right? He's got to remove information related to grand jury deliberations, and he's got to remove anything that's got related to an ongoing investigation that could be referred to other offices, all the stuff sent to the Southern District of New York, etc. If you're Barr... You don't want to louse that up, right? You don't want to put stuff out there that's going to interfere with those investigations and those prosecutions. So, you know, the, also, you know, last week's uh, morning jolt, I went through it. There's a reason prosecutors are not supposed to release stuff in grand juries, right? Grand juries are not the same as regular juries. Regular juries you've seen in 12 Angry Men and maybe you've seen on Law and Order and stuff like that. At that point, they're trying to determine guilt or innocence. A grand jury's job is just to say, is there a sufficient evidence to charge this person with a crime? They're not in the business of, of guilt or innocence, which also means there's a situation of there's no defense attorney. There's no cross-examination of witnesses, right? It's, it's not both sides of the story. It is the prosecutor's side and then just whatever inherent skepticism the jury brings to the table. So because of that, it's not quite that same standard of, of threshold of truth, right? It's, it's stuff that could be Probably best described as an allegation, but not a proven fact. So there's a reason, you know, this is right up there in federal criminal procedure, 6E, which is, you know, Attorney General William Barr laid this out in the letter. Under federal law, I have to take this stuff out. All right. Federal regulations didn't make it up. It's not uh, something obscure. This is fairly standard, right? Late last week, I think it was either Thursday or Friday, uh, Greg, I had written, you know, it helped if William Barr would release how many pages the report is. It's obviously not something that's going to be sensitive or something like that. Almost immediately as the Morning Jolt newsletter hit people's email boxes, word broke that it was more than 300 pages. Now, we don't know if that means it's 301 pages or close to 400 or, or what it is. Let's figure it's somewhere in that range. Um, I'd like to think, by the way, Greg, it was my newsletter that made Absolutely. him. Uh, yeah. Without question. Sure. He trembles in fear. You know. <laughs> but the just being there, that's, okay, that's fairly sizable, right? And you probably have to go through the fine tooth comb. You don't want to make any errors in this. You don't want to louse up somebody's, uh, uh, the Southern District of New York's prosecution of somebody because you put out some information that wasn't supposed to get out there. Now, maybe you think the amount of time that Barr asked for was released you know, probably a week and a half ago. And now you've got 
two more weeks. He said around mid-April he's supposed to have it. Three weeks for 300 pages. That seems good to me. Maybe you feel like he could do it faster. Um, maybe you feel like it's a rush. You know, you know, it's not like this is coming out of the blue, right? And so when you say, you know, release the whole thing right now, the guys who claim to be standing for the rule of law are demanding that the law be violated. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it, it would be absurd, except I kind of feel like I'm angry at the New York Times for not saying Barr is not releasing it yet because he's going through attempting to redact grand jury information, which is required by federal law, which strikes me as the sort of thing that, you know, readers deserve to know, but Nadler did not seem to find was useful because they want to advance this cover-up narrative. And so they're taking a perfectly normal, standard, legally required review and redaction process and attempting to make it sound like it's some sort of, you know, sinister cover-up. Let's go back to our third crazy martini now and back to politicians behaving very badly. And this is uh, far more serious than what Joe Biden is accused of. As our listeners who have been with us for at least the past couple of months know, uh, Virginia's got some issues right now with statewide elected officials. We've got two who admit using blackface, although one says he's not the one in blackface in his yearbook picture. He's also not the one under the Klansman hood. That's the Governor Ralph Northam, who is still on the job, as Jim points out today, without providing any context for uh, who is in that picture. Uh, and Justin Fairfax uh, is the one who is accused now by two women of sexual assault. One of them is Professor Vanessa Tyson, who says that Fairfax forced himself on her at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. She is now speaking out publicly on camera with Gail King of CBS this morning. Here's an excerpt from their conversation. What do you want to happen to Justin Fairfax? Why are you coming forward? I'd want him to resign. I think the Virginia people, the voters of Virginia, have a right to know, you know, both my story and Meredith's story. He said this is an orchestrated smear campaign against him. Yes. By you and Meredith Watson. I've never met Meredith Watson. I don't know what she looks like. I've never spoken with her. Both of them admit that uh, it took them a very long time to come forward. They also talked about why it was so difficult to come forward and so forth. So how does this story change now that uh, these ladies have made their cases public? Okay, actually, ironically, I was just inquiring of all my Virginia Republican sources, <laughs> saying, hey, gentlemen, what are we going to do uh, with this new information? I, I, I want to salute both women for not just going away. I, I salute CBS News for recognizing that this is still a major story. Um, it is April 1st. This is now two months since the uh, Ralph Northam uh, yearbook uh, photo arose. And as I pointed out, you know, it's so two months have gone by. We've at the time, he said that, uh, well, first he initially said it was himself in the photo. And they said, no, no, I just remembered it wasn't me. Uh, he has not given any explanation about who was in the photo. He has not given any explanation of how that photo uh, ended up on his page. Um, it is not clear that, uh, uh, you know, he, he said at one point he was talking about using facial recognition technology to see who was in black. None of that's ever, you know, um, we've got no further answers. However, when it really looked bad for him, all of a sudden this, uh, these allegations against Fairfax leaked. All of a sudden, these things that had been floating around for a while and known for some people in Democratic circles for quite some time. Then all of a sudden the Fairfax stuff came out. So obviously there's a certain um, suspicions may be raised by the timing of the release of Justin Fairfax. But we end up, you know, first we get the allegation, then we get names. Now these women are going on the record. 
I think, you know, we, we, we live with embarrassing state government right now, Greg, for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is that we're two months in or now close to two months in for the Fairfax allegations. We don't even know how or you know, this, this sort of accusation to be adjudicated. I think we're at least one of the allegations I don't believe were outside the statute of limitations. So theoretically, some law enforcement agency could begin an investigation. Uh, although in both cases, it's worth noting that Fairfax claims that there was a consensual sexual act uh, that occurred. So I'm not quite sure. You know, it's not like there'd be physical evidence. It's kind of tough to figure out. You know, how would how would you sort through all that and determine that? Uh, he says he's passed a lie detector test. Uh, you can put a lot of stock in that. You can put minimal stock in that. Um, but we don't even, you know, this, you know, there's been no hearings. Occasionally there's talk about the state legislature holding hearings on this sort of thing. By the time these allegations came forward, a lot of Virginia Democrats said, you know what, he should step down. We can't, you know, the, the, the public can no longer have faith in him. And then it became very clear that Justin Fairfax was not going to resign. And it's just as in the case with Ralph Northam, most Virginia Democrats said, well, okay then. <laughs> and late last week, you know, Ralph Northam is out talking about the importance of cracking down on people who are texting and driving. I'm sorry, if you've been caught with blackface, uh, I don't want to hear from you lecturing anybody else on anything. Okay, I'm sorry. Just you know, go go away, Governor. I'm I'm annoyed with you. I don't believe your denials. I think your initial statement was an admission of guilt, and then when it didn't play the way you expected it did, you backtracked and then made up this crazy story that somebody else may have put it in there. It's an interesting contrast to all of a sudden Joe Biden's past actions suddenly coming under extreme scrutiny after being a non-story for the better part of ten years. Nobody in Virginia knows how to deal with this because you can't get rid of Northam without promoting Fairfax. You can't get rid of Fairfax without putting in a situation where you're removing the, the one African-American one. And you can't get rid of Fairfax and for, uh, you can't get rid of Northam and Fairfax and Herring without having a Republican become the governor. And as Virginia Democrats have made clear, no matter what any of these three men have done, that's the absolute worst case scenario. And that's what's truly unforgivable in their book. Jim? Quite a day, April Fool's Day. You know, we did a, a show on April Fool's with uh, fake stories one time. But last week we had Michael Avenatti shaking down Nike and the Jesse Smollett situation. I'm pretty sure we can't outdo reality anymore. Yeah, I, I, I used to really enjoy April Fool's Day. I did the, uh, a couple of years ago, I did one where much, you know, Morning Joe of MSNBC had bought the Morning Jolt. <laughs> and all of our, all, every, every article concluded with how Joe Scarborough was the greatest leader in American history. <laughs> There's room for fun with this. But like, so I, I thought about this morning writing something that said, you know, Beto O'Rourke injured when he falls off diner counter. <laughs> AOC gets wrong change in cash purchase, doesn't notice because she doesn't understand economics. You know, you can, you can do kind of stuff. But really, the world is so bizarre, Greg. I, I think April Fool's Day starts to feel superfluous. <laughs> That's right. So we come every day in some ways. Jim, good to have you back. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.